the defensiveness out of political leaders about public health criticisms of their plans needs to be taken seriously. Bring them in, say, what, do we, what can we do better? How can we protect people in Vermont better than we're doing now? Rather than, than going after public health people who really have no hidden agenda. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week marks a grim milestone in the COVID-19 pandemic as the death toll in the U.S. hit 800,000 people. One in 100 older Americans has died from the virus. Greg Gonsalves says the Biden administration's attempt to vaccinate our way out of the problem is not working. Gonsalves, a winner of the MacArthur Genius Award, is Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, and he co-directs the Yale Global Health Justice Partnership. Gonsalves first became involved in public health during the AIDS pandemic when he was a leading member of ACT UP, the AIDS activist group. He sees parallels between the AIDS and COVID pandemics in the way that politics and profiteering have sabotaged public health. Gonsalves argued that the Trump administration committed crimes against humanity in its bungling of the early COVID response, especially against vulnerable and marginalized populations. We begin our conversation by talking about his sharp criticism of the Biden administration's approach. Greg Gonsalves, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. This week, President Biden announced a five-step plan to fight COVID uh, this winter. Those five points are expanding the nationwide booster campaign, launching new family vaccination clinics, making at-home tests available, increasing surge response teams, and accelerating our efforts to vaccinate the rest of the world. You've been critical of President Biden. What's missing from that five-point plan? So um, the president had a marvelously comprehensive plan when he started his presidency a year ago or a little little more than a year, a little less than a year ago, excuse me. Um, And, you know, it's not rocket science. There are key components of of that plan, which you, you would like to see reflected now all these months later. Um, first of all, we need access to, to more than just vaccines and boosters, right? We need access to rapid tests and to masks. Um, rapid tests um, are easily available in other countries. Um, if, you, if you're not willing to pay uh, you know, $25 or more a pop for a package of tests um, and know where to get them in your community, you're really at a disadvantage um, as as opposed to people in countries around the world, which make it much more sort of um, point of point of purchase purchase friendly in grocery stores and um, supermarkets in in healthcare and other facilities. Um, also, masks, right? You know, um, the blue surgical masks we use are probably not the best kind to to use, but even so, like a pack of fifty of them is um, not necessarily. Um, cheap for many people. And again, perhaps you can find it in your supermarket, perhaps you can find it in your, your, your um, local drugstore. Um, but the point is we need to make it easy. Richard Thaler, who's a, um, a health economist, a, a development economist, an economist, <laughs> said, um, if you want to help people to do something, you have to make it easy. And we don't make it easy to get tests and masks in this country. Um, you're on your own, you have to figure it out. And the president said, yeah, we'll get your health insurer to reimburse it for you. That's not exactly what we need. We need it done in the same sort of manner in which other countries have pulled up to the, um, pulled up to the bar and delivered on, on getting these commodities out to people. The other piece and probably the, the most disappointing part of the president's um, 
plan to confront COVID is that his um, plan sort of stops at the, at the, at the water's edge. Um, you know, we know from the Omicron variant that um, uh, where people are unvaccinated and particularly in a place like Sub-Saharan Africa, which has high, excuse me, high rates of HIV, um, variants can easily be spawned in an immunocompromised host. Um, <clears throat> so if we're gonna stop COVID in the United States, we have to stop COVID around the world. And that means vaccination. Less than 10% of people on the African continent are vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, and the president has been begged by everybody from groups like Public Citizen in DC to his former CDC commissioner, director, Tom Frieden, the head of the World Health Organization to help get Pfizer and Moderna and the other companies to, to, to pony up and start delivering technology transfer to other companies around the world that can start scaling up these vaccines in, in, in unison with the, the primary manufacturers. Um, president won't do it. President says we're giving away lots of vaccines, you know, you know, whether they're expired or not, or whether they show up on time or not, uh, is another point. But the point is he's not really put the full power of the US government in terms of getting us the things we need, vaccines around the world, mass and and um, rapid tests at home. Then we can talk about, you know, ventilation. We, we know COVID is airborne, um, yet how many of our public buildings uh, or schools, how many private places of employment like Amazon warehouses or poultry packing warehouses where we've seen huge eruptions of SARS-CoV-2 have proper HVAC systems that can filter out um, uh, particles like like the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. There's been talk that there has been profiteering by the big pharmaceuticals, Pfizer, Moderna, the others that are uh, uh, creating the vaccines. They're, we're talking profits in the tens of billions do you what do you make of that? Is do you think that this is profiteering? And there's also talk that they prioritize sales to rich countries, which is why there aren't um, any kind of equity in the developing world. So, Tom Frieden, the former CDC director, <clears throat> directly called this profiteering by companies like Pfizer and Moderna. They've made billions and billions of dollars on these vaccines. I think the Pfizer vaccine is probably the most profitable. Um, uh, medical intervention in terms of a drug or biologic uh, in, in a very long time, if not the, not ever, right? So they're, they're, they're rolling in cash, right? And they did this by, by selling to the highest bidder, which is going to be countries like the US, Canada, and the countries around the world that have uh, rich, stable economies that can afford to be first in line with the cash to buy the vaccines. Um, in a pandemic, um, monopoly price gouging, market manipulating companies are profiteering, right? You know, the World Health, the, the World Trade Organization and others have said in the context of public health emergencies, you can rely on other kinds of mechanisms, compulsory licenses in which a country can say, hey, you know what, I'm just gonna take the vaccine uh, technology and make it on my own um, or voluntary licenses. There's lots of ways to get around it, but the whole idea is that you do extraordinary things in extraordinary times. Right now, the companies have want nothing to do with anything but um, their own timetable for vaccine deliveries on their terms. Should there be free distribution of uh, the rapid tests? What, what would that accomplish here? I know that's something that many critics have been calling for. So, you know, my colleague David Paltiel here, along with Audrey Zhang and Paul Sachs, wrote a piece in the Annals of Internal Medicine that said, even if we threw away more than half the tests. They, you know, he went to your house, went to my house, and I threw them in the garbage. Even if we threw out more than half of them, 
it would still be uh, an important public health intervention to get rapid tests out to all Americans, right? So even in the worst case scenario about what people would do with them, whether they use them or sell them, it would help us diagnose more people. It would help people screen themselves to decide before they go to that party or that holiday gathering, whether they're shedding virus or not. Um, you know, we could talk about getting it to the people who need it most or the people who tend to use it. Um, it's a lot more complicated than just making it wildly available at, at uh, places that you show up on a daily basis in a grocery store, as I said, or at a drugstore, or at your place of employment or in a vending machine. I mean, we could make this incredibly available uh, and think about how to get them to people in the most rapid, efficient way, rather than trying to think about how to finesse it uh, to, you know, maybe it's gotta be the unvaccinated in states where there's no, I mean, we can work with sort of specificities of who needs them, but sometimes universal programs work better than the sort of fancy targeting um, that, that policymakers uh, often um, fall back on. Have you been surprised by the level of resistance and hostility to basic public health measures um, that we've seen during the COVID pandemic? It's very depressing because, you know, the first year of the pandemic was, was President Trump, who essentially controlled the entire United States public health apparatus, CDC, et cetera. Um, and was spewing out misinformation and really, you know, botched the job of responding to the pandemic, except for vaccine production, um, which, which, you know, whether you like him or, or, or hate him, um, he did invest in, in private sector development of these vaccines, along with NIH scientists who did a lot of the work. Um, in 2021, this became a GOP pastime to bash public health. It has nothing to do about the wisdom of, of um, vaccine mandates or mask mandates. You could say, you know, it, it's become um, a way to stoke anger and fear in their base. Um, and, you know, what's surprising to me is people like Ron DeSantis and others have, have talked about, you know, no COVID vaccine mandates. And then in speeches said, yeah, and then we're going to go after those childhood preventable diseases, you know, Kids don't need to be vaccinated against measles, mumps, rubella. I mean, wh what is that, right? It's definitely like a nihilistic, cynical take, which seems like it's part of the party platform now. And it's not out of sort of care for their constituents or care for Americans. It's about um, getting them ahead in the, the, the political sweepstakes about who can be crazier than, than the next person um, coddling up to, to Donald Trump. So it's, it's shocking to me that well, we're having conversations. You uh, weighed in on uh, perhaps an example of this here in Vermont this week when um, public health expert Ann Sasson, um was attacked by the chief of staff of Governor Phil Scott. Um, and you replied and he accused her of advancing a false narrative of trying to conceal the truth. And you uh, tweeted that, quote, you need to bring in the experts, not do political damage control right now. There's a surge happening in Vermont. Shooting the messenger isn't sound public policy. It's abdication of public responsibility and trust. I, w I wonder if you could just sort of you've written about the war on science. So place this little you know, Twitter spat in a larger context. Um, I assume this is strategic when somebody is pushed back or silenced. Um, put this little Vermont episode in the national context. 
it's not a little Vermont episode. I mean, this is a lone researcher at Dartmouth um, who has the full state of Vermont's uh, weight borne down upon her, right? This is, whether it's the chief of staff or the governor himself, they're both responsible for targeting a public health leader in the middle of a pandemic. Now, there is some argument between the figures from Nevada or, or Vermont in terms of mask mandates. The point is, is that there's a surge happening in Vermont um, and uh, Dr. Sosin has advanced um, suggestions for helping to, to, to ameliorate the surge. Um, we're all talking tomorrow on a, on a webinar together about how the country should do this. And, you know, the, the defensiveness out of political leaders um, about public health criticisms of their plans needs to be taken seriously. Bring them in, say, what, are we, what can we do better? How can we protect people in Vermont better than we're doing now? Rather than, than going after public health people who really have no hidden agenda. Um, but to protect the public in, 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 this, in the state of Vermont or in the state of Connecticut where I live. What is the political point or a utility of the war on science, of, on public health experts, which has been written about now? And it's really had a devastating toll in hollowing out the ranks of both public health officials right on down to the nurses and doctors who are under attack. You know, there's been a war on public health. Look, people, this has been a terrible time for all of us, right? It's been two years of, of misery, right, in, in certain sense. And if, you, if you're poor and vulnerable, it's been even worse, right? But people are upset and frustrated and they need to take it out on somebody. Um, and um, what people forget is that public health is political, right? You can have an expert like Ann Sosin or you can have a public health professor like me. We don't make decisions. It's people like the governor of Vermont, the governor of Connecticut, et cetera, who make the decisions in public health. And when things go wrong or things aren't going right, the easiest thing is to punch down, right? Um, the buck stops at the governor's office uh, in, in, in our states. Public health is public and local. Um, but what politicians have figured out to do is to point to the other guy and say, oh, it's their fault. It's the public health people who are, who are, who are raising the alarm or being... Uh, alarmist in the context of a surge happening in our state. And so what this has done is created threats of violence uh, against public health officials who've quit in droves, who, and is leading to burnout among health professionals who, um, without the sort of backup of the sort of public health sphere, um, just are, are, are putting their fingers in dikes as water pours over the edge of the boat. You cut your teeth as an activist in the AIDS movement, uh, working with ACT UP, um, and you've been reflecting on that a bit as you've tweeted in, in your response to what you're seeing now. Talk about your experience in AIDS activism and what are the similarities today as we confront a new pandemic? So um, for those of us of a certain age, we remember the AIDS pandemic from the 80s and the 90s when we had no effective treatments against the disease. And they were desperate times. Right, and you had a, a government, largely the federal government, that really didn't want to um, pay attention to what was happening. Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until seven years into his presidency. If it wasn't for the, the the U.S. Congress at that point, actually in bipartisan fashion, often um, people like Orrin Hatch and Kennedy did some early um, AIDS legislation that was important. Um, we would have been in, in deep trouble because. That virus is hitting what my old colleague Larry Kramer used to call disposable people, people who didn't matter in our in our country, whether they were gay, lesbian, um, bisexual, transgender, or they were people of color, or they're just simply poor. Um, all these years later, we have another political epidemic, right? 
Um, I, I, I often say that infectious diseases are always going to be with us, but pandemics are, are human man-made creations. Um, and we created this pandemic, right? And watching it happen all over again, sort of mismanagement, malign neglect, or, or even malevolence from the government and watching people suffer and die, it's just astounding to me. You'd, you'd think we would have learned our lesson, but perhaps we haven't. Um, what do you mean we've created this pandemic? So we have one of the worst uh, COVID-19 pandemics across the world, right? Um, you know, there are countries uh, around the world that immediately swung into to, to, to action to mitigate their, the spread of the virus, to ensure that um, people could be safe, um, whether it's, you know, what we were talking about earlier, the distribution of, of the commodities that people can use to keep themselves masks and, um, and rapid tests, um, or simply pandemic pay and salary subsidization, um, which, which other countries did, you know, last year when, when people were, were simply out of work and couldn't support themselves. So we created an economic and epidemiological crisis because we, we, were, we, were, we were playing games for much of 2020, you know, and then last summer, not 20, summer 2021, summer 2020, you know, many governors said the pandemic was over. Right, we're reopening this state. We're opening that state. Ron DeSantis, you know, you know, strutting around like a peacock, saying like, you know, Florida's open for business, and you know, Doug Ducey in Arizona, a whole bunch of governors saying it was all over. Well, it hasn't been all over, and their states have seen you know plenty of death and suffering over the past year and a half, but it doesn't seem to matter to them, right? And so um, we could do much, much more against SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. We could have done much more, much more starting in January of 2020, but we decided not to. You know, and while, you know, you can sort of analyze the motives of the Trump administration, the Biden administration, all of them have fallen short in, in, in what needs to be done. It almost in trying to make sense, particularly in the Republican led states where the governors are, as you pointed out, in Florida, lashing out against, it seems, childhood vaccines now um, and in other places in Texas. Uh, making it illegal to pass mask mandates. Um, what do you think this is about? I mean, it's so bizarre, the idea that inflicting pain and suffering on your own constituents is somehow politically beneficial to you. Can you help us understand this? I don't know. It's, it, it, look, the states we're talking about, um, many of them have had terrible health disparities for generations and decades. If you want to look at maternal mortality that rivals some places in Sub-Saharan Africa, you can go to the state of Georgia. Um, if you look at the map of the United States and the sort of chronic diseases, diabetes, cancer, et cetera, look at the health outcomes and you'll see that the states that made decisions about let's reopen for business you know, in the middle of the pandemic are the states that never invested in healthcare, that don't want to expand Medicaid, um, who have fought the ACA through lawsuits that worked their way up to the Supreme Court. And so there's a, there's a sense that we are not our brothers and sisters keepers um, by an entire political party, that the role of the government is to, is, is to get smaller and smaller and smaller until you can strangle in the bathtub. Um, and so the state has no role in, in these folks' lives. You're, everybody's in it for themselves. I'll get my vaccines, I'll protect my family, but you know, you know, leave, leave the state out of it. And whether that's for COVID-19 or diabetes screening or, or protecting maternal mortality, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a weird um, fracture in American life, social and political fracture, in which um, there's an entirely sort of um, 
politics of selfishness uh, that has sort of run rampant for the past 50 years, and now it's all come home to roost. You tweeted this week, um, I would like to know what hope looks like. Can someone describe it to me? I've forgotten what it was. So I would um, like to ask you first what motivated that, you know, kind of sense of despair, but also how do you answer your own question, which I'm hoping isn't just rhetorical, but you have some take on. So one is, you know, the the surge in infections in Vermont and Connecticut, you know, Yale New Haven Hospital where, uh, which is the hospital where I live, you know, is putting the emergency room tent out and out into the parking lot. They're, they're, they're being so overflowed with, with all the care they, that, that needs to be given to the emergency room. Um, all these things are happening, you know, two years into a pandemic and, you know, you're still having to beg a democratic white house to scale up global vaccine uh, access to get masks and, and rapid tests into people's hands, improve ventilation, deal with the sort of, um, uh, fundamental social and economic drivers of this pandemic. What are people in Congress like Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema who like, you know, obstructionist enough to be to call them Republicans. Um, so I, you know, I want to, I want us to get back to some sense of normalcy, but everything we do seems to sort of give the virus an edge and the, and the leg up. Um, whenever you think it's going to, we've turned the corner, we we do something that lets down our guard or or opens the door from for for more carnage. I'm I am hopeful. I mean, I I, I go I go through waves of despair. Who can't? There are eight hundred thousand people dead in the United States from this disease. It took it took forty years plus to get close to seven hundred thousand dead from AIDS in the United States. If you just think of the toll of deaths in the past two years. What I'm hopeful about is that when you see the people who've been fighting from uh, Ansos in Vermont um, to others who are saying, I have something at stake here, and it's the lives of my neighbors, my friends, my family, my, my people in my state of Vermont, people in my state of Connecticut, you realize you know, they haven't given up. And there's so many people like that around the country um, and frankly around the world that are fighting you know, this fight right now, that there, there are hope. There are plenty of people like Ron DeSantis and, and Greg Abbott who, you know, preach the gospel of, of selfishness, but there's really incredibly generous, community-minded, civic-minded people in our country who really want us to get to the other side of this. And those are the people who give me hope. As, you know, as a veteran of the AIDS fight, what lessons, what key lessons do you take from that in terms of, you know, activists change the tide of AIDS policy? Do you think something like that can or should happen with COVID policies? I think it is happening. I mean, I think there's, you know, I work with lots of people who are pushing for vaccine access in the global South. You know, there's a coalition of people, dozens and dozens and dozens of people pushing at country level all around the globe to get their governments to help make this happen. You know, I'm part of larger coalitions in the United States in which we're pushing for better more, more um, evidence-based public health practice. So there is activism happening already. And, you know, there've been demonstrations at the, the CEO's office of, uh, of home at, of the CEO of Pfizer's home in Westchester. We went down and demonstrated in front of Ron Klain's house in suburban Maryland, who is the chief of staff at the White House. People are, people are quote unquote, acting up over COVID-19. What I think I learned from this is that um, we need to, you know, when this is all over, um, whenever it will be, is that we have to, we have to, you know, excuse my language, kick the shit out of the system to make sure this never happens again. Um, because once 
one one time is, is an accident, two times, and I don't know, but three times is just careless, right? And so the point is, is that we've set up a system that is that has primed us for this vulnerability. Um, and we're gonna have to do some really serious thinking about um, how we exist as an American society, as an American po populace, um, because it's not the pandemic of the future that worries me, it's climate change as well. And we are unprepared. We were unprepared in 2020. We can't seem to get our act together in 2021. And I don't know what the next few years are going to be in front of us unless we get our act together. Hmm. Well, Greg Gonsalves, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Anytime. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.